Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. I am your host, Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am here today with Mike Collins. This episode, man, hit home. Michael Collins, founder of sugaraddiction.com and board chairman of Food Addiction Institute, has been completely sugar-free for over 30 years and has worked closely with others to help them regain lives ravaged by this addictive product. Mike has been in recovery from substance use disorder for over 34 years and can speak on recovery topics separate from sugar. He raised two children sugar-free from the womb to over six years old, when they only had sugar once a month for their entire childhood, parent goals. His book, The Last Resort Sugar Detox Guide, was rated number one in healthy living on Amazon. Woo, this episode uh, had me thinking about it for a while after I got off the, uh, the line with Mike. As many of you know, I have been on my own journey with food addiction and sugar addiction and am off sugar and flour for a significant period of time and um, has been absolutely life-changing. And listening, rather talking to Mike was super intense because I related so much to all the things that he was saying. And it was, it was, um, it's so front of mind for me. It's such a a thing that I'm in, particularly with children, um, sugar and children. So anyway, uh, my children are not sugar-free but I, you know, got, I certainly aspire to something close to that. And even if you think sugar has no issue, you know, you have no issues with sugar, no issues with food addiction, this is just a super, super interesting episode about how these chemicals work in our brain. And if you're someone like me, um, Mike also talks about his substance use recovery, but if you're someone like me, these substances, they affect our brains in a way that's very profound that I'm not sure happens for everybody, but maybe it does. And it can also affect people very profoundly who do not struggle with substance use. So what I'm saying here is there's a lot of valuable information. I don't know what, how I just, what that cycle of speech was, but what I'm trying to tell you is this episode is incredible. Mike is incredible. What he's done as a chairman of the Food Addiction Institute is is really uh, groundbreaking. And he has a lot of stuff to say that I think many of us need to hear. And definitely those of us in recovery might want to think about how this affects our recovery, how this affects our mood, our depression, our anxiety, and maybe even pandemic times, things that have brought that on. So I hope you enjoy Mike as much as I did. Episode 62, let's do this. Mike, thank you so much for being here. I have to warn you, I'm so excited to talk to you because I <laughs> because you caught me pretty much in the middle of my uh, and we won't start here, but we it caught me pretty much in the middle of my own sugar journey, like my 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 final willingness to get down to the the core last hurrah. And so I'm so excited to wrap out with you about that because it's so um, topical for me. And I know that all the stuff that you have done has been in this field. So 
Yeah. But you are also in drug and alcohol recovery. I am. 35 years. Mike, where, where are you living? Where do you live? Where are you coming, calling us from? Los Angeles, pa- Pacific Palisades, uh, oh. which is LA County, but just north of yeah. between Malibu live, and Santa Monica. I used to live on, because um, we're from, being from LA, I can talk to you about uh, streets. I used to live on uh, Barrington and Montana. Okay. Walk, walk to the Whole Foods every day. So you, but you grew up in New York. I did, Central New York. Your Syracuse in the middle of the Finger Lakes. And uh, what was, you grew up with an alcoholic father and sound, you know, despite not a very happy childhood, sounds like it, he was an interesting man, a, a, had a very <laughs> intense past. What was, what was that like? Uh, he was an interesting cat for sure. He, uh, and it wasn't, you know, like we do uh, tend to uh, minimize the uh, violence and the uh, alcoholism and stuff and, when he was sober, he was a great guy, <laughs> but he was a character, you know, very charismatic, very handsome, uh, narcissist, I think is the best way to put it. Right. <laughs> but, he, uh, you know, he was, he was a, a binge drinker. He was a Marine and he was the president of the local prison guard union, a maximum security prison. So he, he was kind of an wow. angry dude. <laughs> wow. Kind of an angry, angry fellow. Yeah. When did he leave the Marines and, and go into being a prison guard? He was actually in the Korean War and uh, won a bunch of medals and was in some big battles and you know it uh, you know went up a hill with forty guys came down with five a very it's actually a very famous Korean War battle and then he was a prison guard for twenty five years uh, he got to go to prison every day for twenty five years <laughs> he got to go to prison for twenty five years but he got to come home at night you know and uh, it was. Uh, yeah, I remember when I was driving, when I was picking him up, and be he'd walk out with all these blue shirts, and they would be locked in for every half hour. So they'd all be standing behind this huge gate, and uh, then they'd let him out, and he'd point down to the beer store. So I'd have to drive down. The, he'd walk to the beer store, and I'd have to drive to the beer store. Yeah, no, it was uh, – my job was to fill the second refrigerator with beer. So it was uh, – you know, I, I kind of – just some strange habits you pick up living with a binging – angry, raging alcoholics. Did your mother drink at all? No, my mother, and this is interesting for our top, maybe for our topic, my mother, uh, and I, I don't say this in a, uh, I think this is pretty well proven. I, I call it the good girl's drug. She was a sugar addict. She was a very serious, very intense sugar addict. I mean, drank very little, did drink some when we were younger, but for the last 30 years of her life, really, she never really drank. And what was her relationship like with your father? Uh, look up codependency in the uh, <laughs> dictionary. You'll see a picture of my mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that makes sense. That's, that's, that's who would stay. Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she, was, she was a wonderful woman. She really was. She was uh, a nurse and then literally the commissioner of social services in our small town. And her specializ- specialization was adoption. And uh, she loved her, you know, she liked her job, but, you know, she had my father deal. My father was the president of the local prison guard union. Yeah, no, she was, uh, you know, it was a rough time in negotiation with the state. So my father was in the local newspaper a lot and, and drinking a lot. My father is a great story about my father once punched the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> because he 
wasn't supporting the local prison guard union. So it was, uh, you know, although we were middle middle class blue collar, we had a little colorful color in our life. Yeah. We, so (laughs) (laughs) tell me what happens when you punch the mayor, when they don't agree, when he doesn't agree with your stance. Well, you know, he came home, grew a beard and waited to see what happened. And then my both my parents got their jobs from Democratic power brokers. Long story, but the short version is at the time my mother was the deputy commissioner of social services, and they brokered a <laughs> they brokered a peace treaty for them. They were both social ser- or you know social servants, so they you know government jobs. So they brokered a, a peace accord, I guess, of some sort, and they made an announcement that he had a nice family, basically my mother, and uh, and that. He does, they don't agree, but you know what? Oh my but god! It, 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 it all was smoothed over. Put it that way. What did you think about your dad? So, like growing up, your dad, you know, prison guard, rageaholic, marine. From your the child's perspective, what was your view of him? What did you think about all that? You know, by the time I had consciousness of it all, I mean, I think that his narcissism and his ability to or his inability to ever be wrong was just very frustrating you know i often fantasize about fantasized about being an attorney and going in front of a judge for his admonishments or his uh, punishments or whatever or for what i did i mean literally you could do the same thing i mean it would be the, not a different thing a same thing one day get all this praise and then the next day do the exact same thing and get, you know, whacked on the head. Here's the deal my mom made with my father, like when we were in our early teens. Just don't hit him in the head. Like, spank him. He never hit us with a closed fist. So, I I mean, I give him credit. You know, it's funny that a guy's going to say something like he's going to give him credit for that. Yeah, give him credit. Yeah. Yeah, right? Well, you you know, it depends on where you grow up, right? Like, that's... Yeah, exactly. I mean, Dick never lost a fight in his life. He lost a fight on Guam in the Marines. He hit the guy with a two-by-four the next day. And in the prison, they used to to be able to fight in the early days, right? And, like, the the prisoners, like, he would come home beat up. And they used to call him the White Devil because he never lost a fight there either. And it was... He was a street fighter in his early days, and it was kind of a badge of honor, but for the last seven or eight years, he couldn't go into the prison because things had changed and they might kill him. So he worked outside. And, and what, do you mean, uh, what, what do you mean things had changed? They might kill him. Well, you know, there was an honor in the early days when he, you know, if there was a fight, if he lost, if the, one of the prisoners lost, then be no problem. You know, they respected it. You know, that's why they called him the white devil. But then they, you know, things changed and that would not be the norms changed. And if they had a, if they had a chance to kill him, they would kill him. You know? So it was, you know, one of the things that I think I inherited, I talk about this, too, um, <laughs> is like I felt a sense that he was afraid to go to work. You know, oh, I'm that sure. he, was, he was scared. He would not let it show, you know, right. obviously. Would but not you let felt it show. that. I felt, I mean, intuitively, I think I knew it, you know. Yeah. One time yeah. he was going to, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the largest uh, Attica riot, there was a riot in our prison in Auburn before that. And so he was involved in that riot. And then Attica came, 43 people were killed. And I was, that was the first time I was drinking beer with him. And I had to turn down, like they would call and say, they're go, they're sending buses to Attica. And he'd say, I'm not here, I'm not here, you know, I'm not here, I'm not here. 
And so I had to answer that phone call. So, you know, there was a little crack in his armor there. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Crack, crack, you know. right, right. <laughs> wow. What kind of story was there? any crazy stories that off the top of your head that you remember him coming home with from the prison? Uh, well, during the Auburn riot, he was on top of the roof and uh, they were trying to cut through to get him. Um, and he had a, they had guns, but you know, it, it wasn't like they were going to be a problem, but yeah, I mean, he's uh, cut through was, a prison roof. Yeah. They were trying to cut through the roof. He was, he was above on the roof on the cell block and they were trying to get to him. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of crazy stuff like that. I mean, just, I don't know. It, it was, uh, he hated the place so badly. He was just wanted to get out, you know, retire. Yeah. So, and you had siblings? I had three younger brothers. Yep. Three younger brothers. And are you close to them now? Uh, not really. They all still live within five minutes of what was my parents' home okay. in this in the same town. Two of them are married to sisters, if that gives you any indication <laughs> how small <laughs> the town was. <laughs> wow. Yes. Very small. Yeah. That's amazing. And, yeah. uh, so your, I mean, your first drug must have been sugar, right? My first drug was sugar. Absolutely. What did Absolutely. that look like? Well, I mean, I didn't realize that I was doing it. I don't think anyone does. And I think this is almost my life's mission to un- have make people understand that it is the first drug. It's a gateway drug. It literally goes through the placental barrier. It's, you know, you're having it in the womb. And my mother gained 60 pounds on a 105 pound frame. And, you know, she told me later that all she ate was sugar products. Right. And so, you know, as we were growing up, she had a stash. We knew where it was. Uh, I was telling Christiana about this great YouTube video where uh, Eric Clapton is talking to Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes. And so Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes, they're sitting in his $7 million Antigua treatment center that he built with his own money to help people, Eric Clapton. And Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes says, so Eric, this addiction stuff started with heroin, right? And Eric Clapton, the famous guitarist, says, no, Ed, it started with sugar. I would used to, we used to, he said, I would eat bread and butter and sugar sandwiches at five and six years old just to change my state. I would stuff them in my face. We used to eat bread and butter and sugar sandwiches. There was no peanut butter or bologna or whatever around. We would eat bread and butter and sugar and brown sugar too, brown sugar sandwiches. We call them cinnamon. We call them cinnamon bread because we would do bread, butter, and then we would sprinkle sugar and cinnamon. So it was toast, sugar toast. Sugar toast. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Cinnamon toast all the time. Mm -hmm. All the time. Absolutely. That was a staple, literally. And, uh, you know, Kool-Aid with three times the recipe sugar. And also, like, if you, we had, this is a crazy part that, I mean, I just still, I, I cannot I try, I try to remember if I, if there was any admonishments for the sugar bowl that was sitting on the table. I took it from the estate. Literally, I still have it and the spoons that they use. We had unfettered access to the sugar bowl to put sugar on our Cheerios, cornflakes, I mean, Sugar cereals were just coming in, right? And we loved the Lucky Charms and the Cocoa Puffs and all of the great sugary cereals. But we also had the Cheerios and cornflakes where we put the sugar on. And if you didn't scrape like a half an inch of sugar off the bottom of the bowl, you didn't put enough sugar on, right? Right. So, and that's how that was my childhood, right? I mean, that's how I grew up. And my mother had a. St- and one of the things I was the oldest, so I would go to the grocery store and my rewards were always candy, right? And when you get to be like seven or eight, nine, ten, you start to get an allowance of a buck or something. You always, there's nothing else you can spend a buck on but candy. So. Right, right, just right. 
all kind of everything. I love pizza. I mean, ice cream, cookies. There wasn't anything I didn't like. And when you look back on that, was it ever like, oh my gosh, was there ever a moment you're like, oh, I went from this experience of feeling badly to directly to the, like where you related it, that, that correlation to feeling badly and going to the sugar? I never did. It's a great question. And I never did. But I think it's, I know it's at the crux of the work that I do with people. I mean, when was the last time you saw a movie where a woman broke up with her boyfriend and didn't have an ice cream party afterwards with her friends? You know what I mean? This is, this is a normal kind of thing that people do to feel better. But I didn't put it together until I ran into beer at uh, 13 or 14. Then I realized that a substance was changing my state. You know, and I think a lot of people, do not make the connection. They just think it's life because it's ubiquitous and almost free. You just open a cupboard anywhere any, or a refrigerator or go into a 7-Eleven for less than a dollar or a dollar and a half and get what you need because you, quote, unquote, crave it. But they do not cleave apart, slice apart the idea that your brain says that you need sugar, but they don't think about like when you were a child, when your mother was busy. When my mother cat had four kids under you know, eight under eight years old at one point. And so she'd like literally hand you a cookie and send you to the TV, you know, when instead of getting down, give you on a, give bless you a, her heart. I get it. <laughs> right. To give you a hug or whatever, to do the emotional, uh, right. Right. Whatever you need, the emotional queller and people don't give it the credit for being a strong psychoactive drug that pounds on the dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, and everything else. And so they didn't, this has not been widely known, right? Uh, So that's the, I think the, something we should delve into if you're, if you're willing. Oh, I'm more than willing. I, you know, for the first time I'd ever occurred to me that this was going to be a problem, that that I was like, oh, this is real, was I was sitting in some psychoeducation you know, in some treatment center that I was in, in the gazillion treatment centers I went to. And they said that alcohol metabolizes into sugar. And I went, oh no. (laughs) Oh, like it just, it, all the, you know, all the different pieces clicked. And I thought, oh my God, that makes a lot of sense because we, my parents used to joke about, like, it was funny. They used to joke about my, you know, beelining to the sugar or how I would just get so wound up or it was a preoccupation. And like you said, it was kind of, there was, it was not strange or worrisome. And my mother, interestingly, was all about buying organic food before organic was a thing. So my mom bought the worst cereals. We'd never, ever had (laughs) any of the cool cereals in our house. She bought just absolute, like, I mean, we would joke with her, like, what is this made of? Is this, (laughs) are you sure this is edible? Someone check the box. And it, because it was sugar and, and and this was before they figured out a way to make some of that stuff taste good. And like early days of Kashi cereal. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, And so we would go to friends' houses where they had like candies I'd never heard of and we would eat that because that that was... But in my house, in my actual house, you could have 
like actual table sugar you could have, you know, from the bag, but we didn't have a lot of candy. I did not grow up on candy. I don't, I don't particularly care for like the really crazy candy stuff because I didn't grow up on it. However, the cookies and the cake and that kind of thing, that was the stuff that we made that beeline to. And so the, but it was still notable. It was still really notable. And, and I would have thought that having not had it in the house would have been the thing that would stop some, I mean, I don't know why I would have thought that given drugs and alcohol, but you would think that that would have made a big difference. But I, as soon as I figured out what sugar could do for me, I was, that was my drug. Mm, Yeah. And I think that's common. And I just don't think it gets enough respect. You know, Rodney Dangerfield did get no respect. Doesn't get any respect as a psychoactive drug of, of abuse, first of all, but that it changes your state and just enough to, you know, and dose makes the poison, right? You take a little bit of heroin, you take a little bit of alcohol, take a little bit of cocaine, whatever, and you're good. But we're pounding 20 plus uh, average, you know, like an overweight or, or obese person is probably 30, 40, 50 pounds and teenagers as well. I mean, excuse me, teaspoons of sugar every day, you know, it's just crazy numbers. When I, one of my awakening moments with sugar went as it relates to pregnancy and frankly, awakening moments to everything as it relates to pregnancy, I went to a, with my best friend, I went to an ultrasound and her, her, it was halfway through and her baby was asleep and they really wanted to do, you know, see some measurements and kind of see the baby moving around. And they handed her a pixie stick and had her, I swear, they handed her a pixie stick and um, had her take that. And within five minutes, that baby was moving all around. And I thought, I mean, all the, you know, I've worked in mental health and treatment and kind of substance use disorder for a long time. And all of the like meth, coke, you know, all the different things I had seen for those years was like, it made it to that baby that fast just to, and that was like, that was their thing to wake the baby up, right? To do this ultrasound. And I, I mean, I just wow. remember thinking like, oh my God, what are we doing? So I'm, I'm not a kind of a guy who says I can top that, but I can top that. Oh, top so, it. so do you know what sweeties is? Are they the, no, those are sweet tarts. I'm t- sweeties is a little cup that looks like a small, tiny apple juice cup. And when okay. you pull it out, it's got a binky in it, like a, a baby's pacifier. No, right? no. Tell me you're not. Yeah. So do you know what they use it for? No. They they pull it out, and then they have the sweet formula, whatever it is, and then they put it in the baby's mouth, and then they circumcise the baby. That is the pain reliever. That's the answer. Where? Look in it America? Up. Look up. Yeah. Look up Sweeties. It's still available. It's oh still available. God. Oh my God. I it's mean, still I just, available. Well, <laughs> someone that's, the, that's why it relieves pain, right? It's in, it's a true little literal analgesic. They don't want to give the baby stuff, other stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it, it they understand yeah, it like you're, the pixie stick, you know? Yeah. The pixie stick. And, and I remember someone telling me that, um, you know, that people put, I, I was looking up formulas and different things and, and there was something like, don't put soda in your baby's water bottle. And I remember, <laughs> or not water bottle, baby bottle. And I remember thinking like, oh, what? Who would do that? And hearing that people did that or, and, and watching, 
you know, again, I grew up in like, I grew up on, on the East coast and then in San Francisco Bay area. And my mom was super crunchy. And (laughs) so I didn't know this stuff happened. I remember watching honey boo boo. I don't know if you remember that reality TV show. I, it came on and they were feeding the little girl some, I mean, food, crazy processed food. And I thought that was illegal. I'm embarrassed to say, like, I didn't know that you could feed a small child anything you want. I didn't, I actually didn't know that. And uh, what's interesting though, uh, saying all of this though, is that I have eaten, you know, I married a man from Houston, Texas, and my diet compared to his looks immaculate. I eat, you know, greens. I eat, like, I've always eaten a very, from the outside, looks like a really incredible diet, but these, but even in the health food world, which is, you know, the organic health food, all that stuff, the amount of sugar is still problematic. And what is, what has been so frustrating has been really thinking I was eating well. And, you know, especially uh, moving to a plant-based and just really thinking I was eating well and still having the same problems and not being willing or Realize first realizing, then willing the amount of sugar, even in our health food, even in our plant based food, even in you know stuff that isn't supposed to be you know a, a lot of sugar, isn't supposed what I understood to be, and feeling really frustrated by that, even with with the awareness that I had, and even having with the experience of reading labels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean the health food world is. Uh replete with all kind of crazy sugars and you know and they got great names for them for it you know? right they they make up special names for it right, right. barley syrup or barley malt right syrup yeah like, yeah maltodextrin straight. you know all sorts of all sorts of things so so tell me a little bit you started drinking and you got and got into drugs when did you what kind of what brought you to the place where you wanted to get sober and when did you get sober? Yeah, no, I uh, went through the whole teenage kind of college and, and I, it's strange because (laughs) I, uh, I was a pretty heavy drinker, beer drinker, right? And I would drink a lot of beer and then I would wet the bed. And so I, I couldn't, I couldn't like, I couldn't handle that part anymore. I just, that was too much. So I was about 23 or 24. Between the time I was 23 or 24, I I really only drank like three or four times till I was 28. But I never stopped using pond, never stopped using Coke or Quaaludes or, you know, tripping or, you know, I I was still doing drugs, but I just wasn't drinking, you know. Right. Okay. Uh, Which was strange, you know, and, but it got me promoted to the nightclub business. So I was standing in a nightclub like and the there, I came back out to the bar from my office and there was three drug dealers, three cocaine dealers trying to get they needed to get in my office to make the exchange and I would get the my little cut for let them use right, my right. office. So I turned around, I went out the back door <laughs> and I and I went to a meeting at 28 years old. So that that was uh when I got sober because I was, you know, cocaine brought me to my knees basically and and quickly, you know, it didn't take long. But I think at the end of the day, it took me another three months to quit smoking pot. I think that was my drug of choice. I enjoyed it, and uh, I couldn't stop. I could, you know, my heart hurt all day every day with the cocaine. So I was doing so much. I was really skinny, and it was really I didn't. So anyway, but you know, I was go. I walked into a meeting, All Saints Day, nineteen eighty three, 
in uh, November 1st. And I didn't get sober till February 15th of 84, uh, or didn't stop smoking pot till that day. And yes, there was a woman involved. I was hiding <laughs> over on Valentine's Day. It was my last day ever using any substances that were that are considered a drug of intoxication. Except sugar. I, I continued, and I didn't quit sugar for another three or four years. So what started your journey going from so sobriety? Like what, what, what happened in those three years before you quit sugar? Well, I got married to a woman in recovery. That was a part of it. But I was, I gained about, I'm not that, I'm a thin guy and I gained about 20 pounds and I was like, I had, you know, acne all over my face in my, you know, just shy of 30 years old. And the rosacea that I was fighting against from alcohol, the, the red face stuff was still, you know, was worse. And, uh, you know, just anxious all the time. And I was drinking a lot of caffeine too. And I include caffeine, in my sugar recovery, I'm drinking a lot of caffeine, uh, literally six ounce, 16 ounce Mountain Dews, six or eight a day. And they called me the Mountain Dew man. You know, it was at the time, now the energy drinks, but it uh, was at the time the highest caffeinated beverage on the market and heavy in sugar. And and then I still ate all of the goodies, you know, ice cream, cakes, cookies, candy, whatever. And uh, so I just realized, and I read a, bl- a book called Sugar Blues. And Sugar Blues was written by a guy named William Duffy. He was at a party one time, and uh, a voice from behind, he's getting two lumps of sugar in his coffee, and a voice from behind says, I wouldn't have that stuff in my house, let alone my body. And it was Gloria Swanson, the famous movie star, right? And so he ended up marrying Gloria Swanson, and she was into that, and he got into it. He lost about 40 or 50 pounds, something like that. And the, the pictures of him before and after are pretty dramatic. And uh, so they promoted this book all in the 70s and rewrote it in the 80s. And uh, and I read it and it just something got in my head, you know, health and recovery was going on in my life. And I just, you know, and I love the history lesson, the history lesson of Great Britain growing the largest basically drug cartel in the 17, 16, 17, 1800s by taking empty ships, going to Africa, picking up slaves, going to the Caribbean, picking up rum and molasses and sugar, and going to the Americas and coming back. I mean, El Chapo has nothing on this cartel. They grew to be the largest empire in the world on the backs of sugar and slavery. And somehow that, that I don't know why, I like the history of it all, how we got here, how we evolved into this issue or this problem or whatever, even with drugs and alcohol and, and, and even opioids and stuff, how how the history plays out. And the sugar history to me was very fascinating. And so I started to try and I quit, you know, every day for a couple of years, you know, a year sugar. And then I realized flour is a problem. I quit flour and then caffeine. So all one at a time over a three to four or five year period. And I couldn't tell you when my clean data is on any of that stuff. Um, I just know eventually I stopped using it all. So, you know, there are a lot of different are you familiar with Overeaters Anonymous and Food Addicts Anonymous and all the different anonymous programs? Yeah, I mean, a part of the, uh, I call myself a 12-step anthropologist, right? A 12-step whisperer, if you will, because a lot of the anecdotal evidence, I mean, we'll get into the science evidence in a little bit, but the anecdotal evidence evolved from those groups that you're describing. It's in dusty church basements, 
Overeaters Anonymous was established years and years ago. The problem with Overeaters Anonymous is they let you name your own abstinence, meaning you can use sugar and flour a little bit if you want. You, you can control it depending on who your sponsor is, what your group is, what your geographic location is. It's very different. And people suffer for decades in that program because they can and do use sugar and flour still. But the offshoot groups, Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, Food, Food Addicts Anonymous, the Grace Eaters and CEA How. These 12-step groups all name sugar and flour as the abstinence. And so you have to quit sugar and flour to be abstinent in this those programs. Problem is, those things are freaking tiny. There's Unless you're in the Northeast or in a large metropolitan area, there's almost none of these meetings, right? Now, Food Action Recovery Anonymous is mature in some ways online, but immature in a lot of ways. They, they cut phone meetings. So anyway... I can tell you, I could go on about the anthropology and the evolution of those meetings, but the bottom line is, if you adhered to the other four, the the offshoot four, and didn't eat flour and sugar, you would fall to a right-sized body. Every malady you ever had would cure, and people realize that, right? And now the science is proving out why that happened. Are you familiar? So, so this is where I was telling you, I'm really, you know, excited. This is so in my, I've been clean and sober for 14 years and mm-hmm. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And, um, you know, was a heroin addict, cocaine addict, alcoholic, uh, the whole gamut and got sober for the last time at 19. Um, so you really got to it up to do it by, <laughs> by night. I always say like, you got to make it really bad if you're 19 going, okay, I'm done. And, I thought that at 28. So you did great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I say like, like I wasn't even legal to drink and I was like, okay, I'll know, you know, like I'm done. You know, the last, right. the la- last time I was looking at losing my arms. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, we're done here. And I have known that I have compulsive eating problems for my whole life. I mean, I, my weight has been up and down and up and down and I've done every diet, every, you know, I went to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting when I was in treatment in Arizona in 2003. And then I'd get bits of control. I was young enough that I could work out enough. I could do a triathlon. I could do all these different, you know, right? Like, and exercise addiction. <laughs> right. And, you know, it wasn't even for me, the exercise addiction wasn't, it wasn't even addiction. It was more just enough to, mm, enough control. to ignore the other problem. Like it, I, and so, I've gotten to this place, right, where I, you know, got the life of my, you know, wildest dreams. I was, I got married. I had twin boys who were, um, you know, you're talking about your your mother gaining weight. I gained 100 pounds. However, my children were eight and a half and seven and a half pounds at birth with two placentas, two, uh, wow. you know, two sacks of water and the whole deal. And so- I have um, twins. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, my boys are twins. You do? Okay, are they fraternal? Identical. Identical. Okay, so mine were die die twins, mm-hmm. and the biggest twins to ever be born at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach. And so, <laughs> I if, so so gaining so hearing stories of people gaining sixty pounds with one, I felt pretty good about my hundred pounds, and then. 
you know, they, I, I was able, I used HCG to lose the weight. I don't know if you're familiar, but I used that, uh, the 500 calories a day and whatever. And, um, and then I got hurt and I couldn't exercise. And so anyway, long story short, put the weight back on and have become finally ready to really look at it's flour and sugar. Like you can cut, I've cut every, I've, you know, I've done the thing where you try to do everything, but everything, but, and my mother gave me this book called Bright Line Eating. Are you familiar with Susan Thompson? Sure. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, she's in recovery and I read her book and was like this, I hear the science of it convinced me that you're talking about the anthropology, the history. I have gone to Overeaters Anonymous and have never been successful because I don't know what to, I, I've been unwilling to make to do my bottom line, basically <laughs> sugar and flour. So I've made it all these other things, right? My made my abstinence, all these other things. And I read this book and have been trying to figure out how to live in a world without sugar and flour. And what I, what comes up is these ideas, different people around how, what, you know, the first three ingredients can't be sugar. The first three ingredients can't be flour. No. And, and then, um, and then I have been going, well, if, you know, if the first three ingredients of this ingredient that goes into these ingredients is like, I've been doing all these mind games and it's just, it's this addiction. And, and the detox that I went through was really scary, not in the sense that I was hurt, but just scary in the sense that, that my body had that reaction to not having flour and sugar. When I eat salads and vegan food and all this health food and, but it's, uh, it's filled with sugar. When I turned it over and looked at it and was like, are you kidding me? The, how could this, how does this even have sugar in it? It tastes like cardboard, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and it, but it does. And so anyway, I want to hear all of your wisdom and all of your ideas and everything you've been working on. Cause this is your wheelhouse about this stuff and bright line and what you think about these things. Well, I mean, first off, Susan's a genius. There's no doubt about it. Susan brought out exactly similar to what I did, which was the Dusty Church Basement anonymous stuff, and she translated it because she's also got a, you know, a, a PhD in neuroscience. And in the last five years, the neuroscience uh, and Dr. Robert Lustig, who we interview on our Quit Sugar Summit a couple times already, says that the offending molecule is fructose, right, and that it is. You know, I've asked him point blank in per well, him online and Dr. Fecky in person, is fructose a psychoactive drug? And they don't even let me finish the sub the, the the sentence. And they say, yes, it's a psychoactive drug. And you know, fructose can only be metabolized in the liver. There's no other way to metabolize fructose. And the body doesn't know the difference between the fructose in a Coca-Cola and the fructose in an orange or an orange juice, right? And we can get into the fruit and the vegetarian, the vegan stuff, and I'll tell you know later. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, if, if we have fatty liver in children, and the fatty liver is an alcoholic's disease because they're processing too much fructose. And the fructose is what I believe um, from coming from an addictive background, an addiction background, the reason you can't quit, right? Yes, the glucose, and for your audience, a table sugar is half fructose and half glucose. 
And it's it's a molecule that is just, you know, 50-50, literally. And we all know what the glucose will do and all the rices and white potatoes and stuff. that. And if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor, which we can come back to, but I think that the world changes when uh, non-invasive uh, glucose uh, monitors are able to be uh, put on your wrist like a Fitbit, and Amazon and Google are both working on those. But, you know, if you were to take a graph of your blood sugar every single, you know, day, the glucose is going to destroy. It's going to give you uh, diabetes and every other malady you've ever heard of. But the reason you can't quit, I believe, is the fructose. And the fructose, I believe, is a psychoactive drug. And it's not, I mean, how do you compare the fructose uh, in fruit to the fructose in a processed grain, you know, a processed, uh, well, grain, yes, but, you know, something that's processed down to white powder, white crystal, right? And, you know, this overdose of this necessity that we talked about earlier to manage your emotions with a drug, with a substance, people just think of it as life. They think of it as aging. They think of it as this is how life works. If I'm a little upset, they don't think I'm a little upset. They think I just need to pop up Kersey's kiss and it'll be okay for a minute. And this training, if you will, this literal drug training is what got us here into this problem, right? Because we're ingesting fructose all day, every day, uh, at in ex- accelerating levels, and everyone, there was a great book written many, many years ago, and the woman just passed, Ann Wilson Shaft, When Society Becomes an Addict. Now, it didn't discuss this, but I really believe, <laughs> it discussed, um, you know, addiction and codependent systems. It's a great book, and all her books are good about codependency, right? But I really believe that society has become addicted to this process, this product, and has eschewed and escaped from the possibility that their emotional management systems are run by a drug. They're run by uh, fructose and, and sugar in general. And that in order to really have an emotional management system, children need to grow up playing and eating healthy food and getting hugs and calling their friends and playing with their friends. And then we need to continue doing that as adults by getting massages. We need to have a new emotional management tools, right? And when someone in my work finally separates, cleaves apart the idea that they were and are managing their emotions with sugar, then they get well. Now, there's always this question, did it, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The, the childhood trauma, the emotional stuff, you're not going to get that. It's like drinking. It's like drinking a beer or shooting something up and trying to figure out why I'm drinking and why I'm shooting something up. For, it's the same freaking process. you got to get abstinent first. Then you work on that stuff, right? And people confuse my work, and I want to stand here and clarify that you have to get abstinent first. Believe me, the issues will present themselves in the first year. They will surface. They'll surface in your normal everyday stressors where you can't get into a meeting without, you know, two lumps and a cup of coffee. You literally can't go to the meeting. You feel like, I, I do not have the the emotional egoic capital to go into this meeting without this substance, right? Well, yeah, when you see that, 
because you're abstinent, then you start to deal with that problem and start to deal with that issue, right? But you can't do it on the other side of abstinence. You can't do it while you're thinking about it, you know? So, I mean, it's the short version. He probably brings up more questions than it answers, but, you know, sugar fructose is a psychoactive drug that we use to buoy up emotions, and we just, we don't have the two tied together. And the science, if you, now, I mean, I don't even have to talk about the science anymore. It's just too plain. You put somebody in that, you use a pixie stick on a pregnant person, you put someone in an MRI, and you put sugar in them, and it lights up the exact same reward centers as cocaine and heroin and alcohol. It's exactly the same. And you're putting more in, right? You're putting more. The dose is constant. There's never any break. There's never any respite from manipulating. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to manipulate my brain chemicals. I want to figure out how how do I live holistically, normally, And how do I, through exercise and good nutrition and proper rest and proper hydration, how do I get my my brain to work for me in the best way it can? Yeah. I don't want to get the the artificial bump from caffeine and sugar. So what about so you talked about fruit and what I've read is that you can eat fruit in moderation. That fruit, you know, eating fruit in moderation is great if you eat it as the whole fruit because of the fiber. Yeah. Is that this always brings up a lot of pushback? I mean, this is something that is, and I'll just tell you my story, okay? So, and then I'll I'll expound on the uh the science that exists today. So I was 25 years in with that exact thought process. No flour, no sugar, no caffeine, no white powder. I call it powder addiction. Anything that's ever been reduced to a white powder, the body probably can't handle in excess, including pills and supplements and shakes and crap like that, right? The body, it's, it could be a catalyst maybe for a healing for a small amount, but it's not something you're supposed to take every day. I think in the evolutionary biology of it all, yeah, you might have got a little dirt and dust on your food and the uh, and your body can handle it, but it wasn't you're supposed not supposed to eat sand and dirt all day. You're not supposed to be able to process powdered stuff. You need a lot of liquids, and that's why people pee all day, right? Uh, you know, when they eat a lot of sugar, and that's why diabetics pee all the time because they're trying to push this stuff out, this poison out. And so my story was again, twenty five years in, And I ate oats, I ate rice, I ate fruit, I drank fruit juice, mostly organic orange juice and quite a bit of it. And I ate every kind of fruit I enjoy. At one point in time, I was a raw food vegan on that stupid, I don't want to, I shouldn't make judgments, but the 80-20 rule, that that diet where 80% of my calories came from sugar, from fruit, right? And, uh, And I literally, my hair was falling out. Um, my periodontal disease had accelerated from my sugar days, literally where I had stopped it completely when I started eating that heavy fruit, right? Um, my eyesight started to change. I had lost my first tooth in my life in my 50s, right? I had never lost a tooth. And my, I had acne. I had adult acne from the time I was a teenager till in my 50s, right? And the the most unfortunate part is that both my parents died of Alzheimer's and my mother in the last two years of her life could not, would not, did not want to eat anything but sugar because she had no filter and no memory and her memory was going. She had some memory. 
And we had to force her to eat real food. She just wanted to eat sugar. I watched sugar addiction close up, you know, at the end of life. And I was in, you know, approaching my early 60s, and I, I had little cognitive lapses. I literally would go to a browser, one other browser. I wouldn't know why the hell I was there. You know what I mean? And I'm like, what the hell is this, right? So I talked to someone. I don't know if it says my bio there, but I'm, you know, I was the chairman of the board of the Food Addiction Institute. And I talked to a woman who's been sober for 40 years, sugar and flour and grain and fruit free almost. She does a little fruit, but, and I do a little fruit too, a little berries and sometimes, but she's pretty much free of grains. Uh, oats, rice, white rice, all this stuff. And I'm a human experimenter, man. I used it. I used my own children as guinea pigs. You know, I didn't give my kids sugar and flour from the womb till they were six years old or caffeine. I'm, I'll experiment on anything. So I said, all right, I'll give it a try. All of those maladies that I described, I quit oats, I quit rice, I quit fruit, I quit fruit juice. All of them, all of them disappeared. Not overnight, but it disappeared within a month or two. The cognitive decline, the acne, the, oh, bleeding gums. I had bleeding gums since the time I started brushing my teeth, okay? Gone, completely gone, okay? After I quit the things that I'm describing. Again, is this anecdotal? Is this only me? I don't think so, because now I've worked with tens of thousands of people um, online and, you know, thousands of people um, one-on-one, and I get the same types of results. These, when you give up these processes, these products, uh, your life changes. The what things do you in your eat? life change. You know, it's funny because I was a vegetarian for many, many years, and I was like that on that raw food vegetarian diet. And I, not that I'm a keto guy, but I do eat, you know, fatty stuff now, and I, a lot of fish, and a lot of greens. I eat a ton of greens and a ton of, you know, so I eat fat because I believe fat is now more uh, valuable. And in the vegetarian world, and again, I know you're vegetarian or vegan or whatever, but I, I, I just see that there's, that in order to get the calories, you have to eat the grains and the fruits because you will not have enough calories regard, without it. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, educators is a uh, has been on our summit and she she's really advanced in all this. And, you know, it's just that I, I I'm hedging a little bit because I know your uh, background, but I, I just, I think that's the, I think that's the path, you know, and, and, and this is through a lot of study and a lot of trial and error, both personally and with a lot of the folks that I work with. You think which is the path to eat some animal products. So I eat, eat fish and I eat eggs. Oh, good. No, yeah. and eggs are good. And the fish is good. Yeah. I think that's, a, I think it's a, and I think fat in during the withdrawal periods helps withdrawals, helps with withdrawals, right? Do you and think I that- do? I literally have coaches that are vegetarian. It's not impossible. It's just harder. Do you think that? So my this is just my stance. My stance yeah. is I don't want to eat factory farmed food. That that's my stance. I don't want to eat. Nor do I. Nor do I. I don't want to eat tortured animals. That's that. I don't want to support it. I don't want to eat it. I if 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 you know, small farms where they have a great life and then one day see you later and they're not going to huge slaughterhouses. Like there are circumstances where I am comfortable eating meat. That's just me. And so it's not that I won't do it. It's just a lot of work to like to get to that place. And I have vegetarian children who I have been looking into for that specific, you know, like I want to give them 
some meat and I want it to, I don't want, I want to find a way to do it where I'm comfortable with it. And so I'm not against it. I just, it's just more work. And, and I don't particularly, I've never been someone who particularly craves it, doesn't really excite me. So, you know, curious about like, what do you think the perfect, forget what I do or what anyone else does. Like what's the, what is the perfect diet? Well, like I said, I eat a ton of greens, kale, uh, collards, Brussels sprouts, spinach. Um, if it's green, I love, I, I like it. I, I've always liked it. So, and all the other vegetables too. And then, like you say, I mean, I eat eggs and I eat fish and I eat lean, grass-fed, grass-finished, you know, pasture-raised uh, beef uh, occasionally too, and chicken too. And so I just think that, and I don't really eat until one or two in the afternoon. I mean, it's I'm just not hungry. You know, I'm just not hungry. So you're doing that. It's more of what what would be called intermittent. What traditionally called intermittent fasting, yes. But I didn't adopt that. You know, like I said, for years I was called the oatmeal guy because when we go to business events, I would. Uh, bring a sack of oats and make it in the hotel room and steal some bowls and just pour the oats over it every morning. You know, I mean, I've been, I've used again, I, I think that the concept or the construct of listening to your body sounds frou-frou. It sounds like, and, and most people can't or don't, like they don't really do it, like they don't do A-B testing uh, the way that they should, like they don't remove something or everything for 30 days and then try and gently add something back, right, to be to really be operating with a clean slate. And I'm bad at it because I always want to do two or three things at the same time. And I don't know where the result came from. You know, I'm quitting this or like recently nut butter was became a like I was obsessed with freaking nut butter, like had to have it every night. You know, and then I started having to have it in the afternoon. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, and so, you you know, you trying to listen to anything that I need more of. And just like the alcohol and drug days, like nuts is can be a problem when you have a diet like mine, right? So I just listen to my body and see what it says. And, and that experiment that I had after that, my talk with that woman uh, five years ago, it changed my life. It changed my perspective quickly. I mean, nothing worked that well because I Dropped it all. I didn't drop it all at the same time. Again, it was like it was always gradual. You know, I'd go two weeks, have a bowl of oats, go three weeks, have a couple of bananas, whatever. But, you know, it's uh, listening to your own body is an important thing that I don't think people are dialed into because I really believe, and this is a terrible thing to say and a terrible way to put it, but I believe that they're using sugar as an anesthesia, an analgesic, a, a, a psychoactive, so that they're not really to the to the deep uh, recesses of what actual food does to their body you know they're busy getting this toxin out through urination they're busy going on a roller coaster of emotions where they're irritable and they don't sleep or they have night sweats and they can't figure it all out because they don't put it together with sugar stay tuned to hear more in just a moment hi It's Ashley, your host. I'm so excited to announce a brand new support group at Lion Rock called Community. Community is a recovery support group where all people in the pursuit of peace in mind and body may find hope and healing through connections with each other. Community is open to everyone and meetings are available online daily, Monday through Saturday. For more information, please visit our website, www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on meetings tab. Come and join us. 
So, okay, let me just tell you a little bit about community. Community is awesome in part because I helped write it. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the belief. So this is a place where people can come. doesn't matter what you're recovering from. doesn't matter how you define your recovery, your sobriety, your abstinence, what have you. And I just want to give you a little snapshot. Here are the beliefs of the program. We believe that finding peace and recovery requires a personal path and that recovery looks different for different people. We celebrate the diversity of paths and traditions. We believe that our lives can be different from what they are today, and we can get there with the support of community when we ask for help. We believe that we can change our lives if we can conquer our fears by doing the work. We believe that recovery requires renewal and depends on personal growth. Like many people before us, we believe you get what you give. We give positive energy. We believe that our inner pain must be released for us to find freedom, and the pain is often a signal there's more work to do. The work may include repairing the damage we caused. Our common bond began with our desire to relieve our pain at all costs and continues with the cultivation of our healing through our connections to each other. Our common goal is the pursuit of peace in mind, body, and spirit. Yeah, yeah. So it's awesome. The people are awesome. The meetings are awesome. And I highly recommend you go and check that out. Please, again, go to www.lionrockrecovery.com, hit meetings tab, and you will see an exhaustive list of community recovery support group meetings, including ones for LGBTQ and upcoming ones for the podcast book club. Stay tuned. Yeah, I think one thing that I found interesting is I'm less hungry when I don't have sugar and flour in my body. And so when people, when people talk about intuitive, when people have talked about, I always would joke and go into OA, OA meetings and, and say like, when people have told me over the years and the gazillion nutritionists that I've had about intuitive eating, I'd say intuitive eating got me to Overeaters Anonymous. Like I intuitive sugar addicts, uh, you know, intuitive eating with a sugar addict gives you an intuitive sugar addict. That's right. Right. And I was like, that doesn't, but, but I do see intuition as more of a part of the process. If you don't have those things in there, I can, I, that makes sense to me because I do feel the difference, but I think you know, it's interesting. One of the things that I run into, and I think given that you have this background, you may have really great experience with it, which is, oh, Ashley, you do everything so extreme. You're an alcoholic. Like the 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 judgment that I get just for quitting sugar and flour, even from my just even from my own community is so intense and and actually has made people angry with me and has made people and then it's like what you're you're showing your children um here are the thing I'll just list the things that I get you're showing your children erratic food behavior you're highlighting um by not eating you know this here and there you are highlighting eating disordered or disordered eating in your home you are not sharing in a meal that we have all cooked and eating together. So you have to make things more difficult. You stand out. You're difficult to travel with. You're difficult to eat with. Everything is, you know, every, we have to work around this. It's so extreme. You know, you just need to cut back. Uh, you, I mean, seriously, seriously, I, 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 heard every one of them a hundred times. I've had way more acceptance around being a drug addict and an alcoholic. (laughs) Honestly, it's been, and I will tell you, I'll tell you that I, for, so when I did the HCG, 
this is you so I wonder what you think about this. So when I did this, so for years I I was like lactose lady, okay? And um <laughs> and my my parents my parents would joke that I was a lactarian, like it was an ongoing joke. I just loved dairy. And my, when my mom was pregnant with me, all she drank was milk. Um she said she craved milk even though she hates milk, she craved milk. And so That's funny. Um, my mom did too. And and so I but I, it always made me feel kind of, I also didn't feel well. The twins are born. I go to do HCG and HCG you, and, and listen, I'm, I'm, I like to do things like 98%, but never like a hundred percent. I like to live between like, you know, like add in my 2% of what I think. And, um, and I did this a hundred percent because I was terrified. I knew that if you do this drug, you will gain weight if you screw with it, right? So I was like, okay, okay, surrender. So I quit everything. And when I tried to add dairy back into my diet, I no longer eat dairy. When I tried to eat dairy back into my diet, I became so violently ill that I was, you know, most people, it's diarrhea. I was puking from adding dairy back into my system. Now, I don't know. What I say is I became lactose intolerant after the twins were born. That's what I say. However, interestingly, like all these things where when I tried to eat it or when I do have it now, I get symptoms that I used to attribute to PMS. And I thought they were straight, like symptoms that I would go, gosh, it's weird. I'm not supposed to be PMSing right now, but that feels like PMS. When I eat dairy, that's what happens. That's Those are the feelings that I get. I get really emotional. I randomly cry. I don't cry a lot. And I randomly start to cry. I'm like, I don't know. I must've had dairy somewhere. And I can't, my body can not have any. And I'm also someone who will test the, th- you know, test the theory. Like, are you sure you can't have any? Are you sure? So I've tested it <laughs> and, and I'm so averse that I, that even, I will not even try it. I will not, I mean, for me to not be willing to suffer through pain of something for something I like, that's a big deal. And because it makes me that ill. And I wonder, that was the only time I'd ever been willing to do that. I wonder if I had been you know, intolerant my whole life and just had no idea. But even that, even with that, where my family has seen me vomit from having something with dairy in it in close quarters, it's still annoying for people. Like it's still, I'm still the, you know, so anyway, curious what you think about all that. Well, that's a lot right there, but I, I'm, I have a lot of thoughts on that. That's a very, important topic. It's literally one of the pillars of what we do. And that's the social necessity to understand what you're getting yourself into. Because we, everyone that ever tries this has the same issue. And without uh, adhere or uh, admitting or participation in a new tribe, another tribe of people who believe as you and I do, then it's more difficult. The founder of the Food Addiction Institute said this thing takes an inordinate amount of support meaning more as much as a drug and alcohol addiction, right? And they're trying to get food addiction and flour and sugar names as a substance use disorder, right? Like in the DSM. In the DSM-6, correct. And the World Health Organization 11 or whatever, the IDM, whatever it is. And so the one thing that I want to stress, and this is, again, this is going to be a little controversial, but I believe it with all my heart. I believe that the stuff that you're talking about where people say this is disordered eating and this is this, that, and the other thing. First of all, nutritionists, nutritionists are the worst. They're backed by they're backed by a lot of the food industry, and they believe that 
there's some way that moderation is possible for a food addict, right? And now I'm going to really, ta- you know, uh, attack the sacred cows and the holy grail and that and binge or not binge eating, well, binge eating to some level, but definitely anorexia and bulimia are process addictions like gambling and sex, right? Truthfully, and that, that makes total sense. Yeah, they're process addictions, right? And yes, they involve food. You know, there's always the mystery is why bulimics and anorexias do well in some of the 12-step food meetings because they eliminate sugar and flour, right? They eliminate the trigger foods, right? And so, you know, binge eating to some level, and, you know, that's probably up in, up in, up in the air, but food addiction, uh, sugar addiction is a substance use disorder. It's, Wait, it's a, it, question. Food addiction, can you, isn't food addiction only sugar and flour because how can you you're, are you you're not going to be food addicted food addiction is a bad name and it needs to right. be changed okay it's so basically what should, processed food addiction processed food because okay, pro, you can't be ultra, addicted to ultra veggies. processed foods okay well here's the thing about volume eating right a lot Vo- of people right. volume eating yes a lot of people can volume eat meaning you're stretching your stomach and you're still getting the same hit you're getting the endorphins you're getting the dopamine because in the old days of feast or famine that was a that was a adopt that was a an adoption technique and adapt you know adaptability technique where you'd eat as much as you could because you might not know when you're going to get next meal and so it was okay you know but we don't need to do that now so people but it still gives off the same kind of dopamine so you can stretch your stomach right the same kind of whatever and that when i find in recovering sugar and flour addicts sugar addicts processed food addicts that volume only raises its ugly head like 10 to 15% of the time. It's very real and people can do it. They can overeat a lot of broccoli and steak and stretch their stomach out and, you know, get the same kind of high, if you will. But I just don't see it as a, if you eliminate the flour and sugar, a lot of times that problem solves itself is what I'm saying. Yeah. I can't, I can't see myself eating like 300 carrots. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, so, and most people don't binge. And when you look at binge foods and binge stuff, yeah, there is some in there. Maybe there might be a little, little burger in that, you know, hamburger right, right. and all the other stuff. But right. for the most part, it's, they're bin- they're binging on ultra processed carbs. Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So with all of that said, I want to talk a bit about what you do now. And I want to talk a bit about how you coach people on interacting with their families on these topics or, or, or their social group. Cause that is, I found it, I found that to be frankly, the hardest component of all of it, because I just stood, I, it's like, I don't stand out that much, not drinking and using drugs. And I've traveled all over the world doing it. And, and it just don't, I just don't stand out that much. What's the coaching around that. And then I also want to know about what's the coaching around parenting, because what I get a lot is you're putting your disordered stuff on your children. And cause I didn't let them have sugar for a long time. And now I do. And it's a complete show because they're children of two alcoholics and I'm going, this is, doesn't feel right. And, and, but I, I'm also, the world is telling me that. And, and since I know I have disordered eating, I know I have that part of me. I, and like, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just, maybe I'm, you know. So how do you talk about those two from from the social aspect for them and then the parenting aspect? 
Yeah, great questions. And it is, as I mentioned earlier, a pillar of, of our recovery. And in alcohol and drugs, it's, uh, you, you know, they use meetings where they literally join another tribe so that they have a group of people who is just like them, who are just like them, right? And many, many times, the, you're the only person, the person who's trying to, who's done their research, who's, you know, just said enough's enough, tired of being sick and tired. That person is the only person in the family. Strangely enough, it's mostly women. It, you know, it's a, it's a, mostly women, and they have to cook for kid, kids. So it, you know, fall, set, falls into the second question, and a husband who's not sometimes on board with this. You know, and so they have to belong to another tribe. They have to have that 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 security. They have to grow to have friendships and and uh, talk with other people in a community, be it online or in person. But you know, nowadays it's obviously online, but. I have this thing, I call it the gift of 90 days, the gift of 30 days or the gift of 90 days. You know, no one, if we talk about what we talked about before, and if they are willing to give themselves this gift, like if you were an allergist, right? If you went to an allergist, they, they'd scratch you for pollen and ragweed and all this other stuff. And I found out recently, you can actually be allergic to sugar. You can have a little allergy test, whatever. But the bottom line is, like we are talking about testing your own body, if I have never, ever, in all you know, decade of doing this, seeing someone get 90 real days of abstinence from flour, sugar, and caffeine, and then go back. Yes, they slip occasionally, and yes, they make mistakes and relapse and do things, but they always come back at that point. Once you get there, you feel so different. You've lost weight. Your skin is clear. The brain fog is gone. Maybe the bleeding gum. A lot of malady. People literally get off of meds, both psychotropic, SSRIs, and diabetes meds. And once that happens, we've ruined their sugar. And most people are not able to take that take that leap. They're not able they're not able to no, they're not able to get the the 90 in. They're not able to to do the experiment, to do their own scratch test, right? And as far as this disordered eating children look, I mean, again, mine may be anecdotal a little bit, but my kids, they thought we were deprived. We fought the Montessori school. We fought other kids' parents. We fought grand, our own parents, grandparents, right? They they're like, you know, they think they 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 were depriving them of something, right? My kids didn't know what it was. From one, from zero to whatever, five, we have 100% control. Now, once they've had it, that's another story. But I've had, you know, coaches and participants in our program get their kids off sugar. It's just a discussion, right? And here's the main thing with kids, okay, and this disordered eating stuff that we have to smash this norm, okay? You are grooving a neural pathway, with the sugar. You are grooving a neural pathway that is going to last for a long time and takes a long time to change and heal and rectify when you're giving children that age. That first thousand days is so important, such a such an important time period in the development. The brain develops, I don't know, the numbers are insanely high from birth to the first three years. And it's so important that you, I mean, women literally with substance use disorders can, alcohol, drugs, they find out in an afternoon on a Tuesday that they're pregnant and bam, they're done with alcohol and they're done with drugs that day, right? And with the science, if they were to do the science, if they were to read the science and understand the science, they would do the same with sugar today. I believe that. And I, and I think if they would read the, the literature 
that's coming out daily that they would do it with sugar as well. You know, they would add that to the thing that they would quit when they find out they're pregnant or before. So you just said something that terrifies me. You said caffeine. Yeah. (laughs) Now, even things like black tea, like all caffeine. I mean, I guess that's caffeine. Caffeine is caffeine, caffeine. Right. So what? Okay. So. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I get the. You think you got it? I mean, think about me. I mean, I get it so badly that oh, I, I can't am, even imagine that that you know, I'm extreme and I'm this and I'm that. But look, I got hundreds. Probably, I got hundreds that I could name personally, but probably thousands from groups and courses and communities that we have online that have given me feedback on this stuff. That have that are telling me that this is what happened. You know. When I quit all these things. So I don't care anymore, really. I mean, I don't care what the general public says anymore or, you know, what the anyway, what I'm getting about the caffeine is wired together, fired together. Hear that term like chocolate, sugar and coffee, sugar and tea. These things are wired together and fired together. I'm going to probably explode this guy's group, but there's groups online that are quitting caffeine. And when you listen to the maturity of the addiction recovery in quitting caffeine, where pause, you know, pause is post-acute withdrawal symptom. I do because I experienced it with, with sugar and flour. Oh, my God. I thought it was like flu symptoms. Yep. And this is the same thing with caffeine. People literally cannot regain their equilibrium. Can't They're depressed for months at a time, years sometimes, six months. And But the people with one and two and three years are there helping them explain that it goes away eventually. Again, chocolate. When you're a baby, you, you've grooved neural pathways that say, you know, this makes me feel better. This makes me feel better. And I eat it. Okay. And then when you stop it, you've got to re, re-groove those pathways, right? You've got to change. What they call in the science, the dopamine receptors are down-regulated, okay? The, the, you have less of them. You, you, you've literally, uh, like major you know created a symptom in your body that has lessened the dopamine the the thing that makes you feel good the thing we used to use the thing we evolved to use for sex and chasing food has now been hijacked by a substance right and it's powerful it's very i heard a thing the other day uh there you know sex and dopamine is or or food and dopamine is one sex and dopamine is uh, a two, but straight dopamine's like a ten. You know what I mean? It's if I can get dopamine, it's a real high. And people, I mean, I've had them. I'm gonna tell you a story. This is interesting. So I didn't go until my parents passed away about four years ago, three years ago. I didn't go public with my substance use disorder stuff, right? I wasn't on podcasts or in my teachings or anything. I didn't tell people about my my uh, recovery from alcohol and drugs. So I. <laughs> went public with it. And I got this immediate flood of people who have been sober five years, 10 years, 20 years. I have one coach sober 20 years, been to every group you and I have talked about, never made it click with the addiction part, right? She's now like a year. uh, and, And I've got hundreds of these people now who are recovering addicts to, to a man, to a woman, every single one of them said quitting sugar and flour and caffeine was harder than quitting drugs. Every single one of them. Yeah, because no one's like, please use this. 
Right. And mainly because of the first thing that the original question that you just asked was, it's the societal acceptance of these things, right? The societal norms, right? Because they don't, I look, I don't want to be left. I do not, I did not pick this anti-Candyman deal. You know, God put it in my head, the universe put it in my head. I don't know. But now that the science is right in front of me and years of working with folks is right in front of me, how can I turn my back on children who are obese? You know, I mean, children that are, you know, that the parents don't know what they're doing in the, in the, in regards to feeding them correctly. You know, they, they, they're eating food like products that evolved also when you great, great history lesson from K rations from world war two, when they stopped, they had to figure out what business they were in. So now the middle of the grocery store store is filled with these products full of sugar, flour, and caffeine. I mean, I'm okay. I'm off my soapbox for a minute. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to take over your podcast. With no, the no, soap, no. You know, with the, no, no, no. I, I mean, love it. Yeah. I, I just, it's, uh, I, it so, hurts my heart to see obese children and, yeah. and it's not their fault. They don't, they are not going to buy the food. They're not out there shopping, you know. But, but I will tell you this. So when I moved to California. So I, we lived in Cambridge and I moved to California when I was seven and it was a cross country move. I, there had been, um, sexual abuse going on as like a little, little kid, which we, we know that like the ACEs score, the, you know, sexual abuse and obesity, all these different things. Right. And, uh, so, so we moved cross country. I'm, my dad's Jewish, my mom's Episcopalian. I get put in Catholic school across the all these things. Right. I was like, not able to deal. (laughs) Right. Like not able to deal. And, uh, and I, and I became an, you know, I don't know if it was considered obese, but very overweight little kid quickly. And the reason was, and my parents were, I remember them having these sitting me down and trying to have these conversations with me. Like, I remember looking at my mother, like, why is she struggling so much? Like she just like, what is she trying to say? You know, just trying not to ruin my self-esteem, but also that's how fast I put the weight on. And the school, I was having school lunches. And so I was choosing things at school. It wasn't what it was, I was being sent with. It was what I was, what I was choosing at school and that I could get multiples of those things. And so I was choosing foods at school in first grade that were, that were putting on the weight. And I always think of that because, you know, I may control what my boys eat to you know, right now, but even if I, I'm paying for school lunch, or even if I send them with school lunch, which sometimes they did, they may still have access to those foods. They're still making those decisions. And so I think that's where you come back to the neural pathways because the kids who are, you know, those, those, you know, grooves that we're creating are, are those coping mechanisms. We're going to be looking for those and especially those of us who struggled and who were looking for an out, like a real legitimate out. And I mean, me gaining all that weight in first grade was incredibly clear. It was, you know, it was very obvious. It was, and looking back, it was, it was, it makes total sense. It was like, oh, she's using, (laughs) she's, she's using. And then it took me however long to kind of get into, you know, relatively normal size body. And by then alcohol and drugs works better than the food. I didn't want to be overweight. So, so then, you know, take away those things. And now I'm back to that. And, and one thing that's interesting 
I mean, not, not um, surprising that I hear about all the time with people getting sober is, oh my gosh, my food issues are coming up, but we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the prevalence of, and the relation to, oh, we put down this one thing and in, and specifically the food issues are going to come raging back. Yeah. Well, that happens. So, I mean, you know, you talk about the freshman 15 and early recovery is like the freshman 50 people literally gain 50 pounds quick, quick, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, they tell you. And no, right? and, and you know, in the early days, and I'm an at was an abstinence based guy, right? And I used to go to these black belt AA meetings, right? And the guys would say, shut up, sit down. You don't, you know, you don't got a right to talk kind of thing. And then I would bring up this stuff a little bit and they'd say, you sober today, Mike? I'd say, yeah, well, don't worry about the damn sugar in the floor. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's like a, and it's, it's actually in the big book of AA. I mean, it's like people substitute one drug for another, right? And look, if you ever go into one of those mature, and I've been to the National Convention, if you go to a mature Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous meeting where everyone is abstinent flour and sugar, some are abstinent caffeine, but not all. That's not part of that program. But they all talk about exactly what you're talking about. They've done a history. They know when they started using extensively they 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 understand just like their alcohol and drug history and that the emotional recovery if you will was the exact same as we had to go through for drugs and alcohol you know we we couldn't i mean it's common knowledge in treatment centers and even out treatment centers that if you started using drugs and alcohol when you're 14 or 15 that's when you stop growing emotionally right right i mean that's a common construct yeah, it's a yeah. common idea yeah. it's something that they wor- that they uh, account for and work on as you get abstinence and get into recovery why not i mean not why not if you go to the food groups, you see the exact same recovery. It's identical, right? right? Because they, and these are people that never drank. A lot of them never drank, never did drugs. They, their drug was food, sugar, flour, right? That was their drug. And so they go through that same emotional reordering, that same cycle of coming back to the norm, you know? And the idea, like I talked about the folks that have come around that are, not, are recovering folks in the groups that we have, is that, you know, it's almost like methadone or suboxone. It's like sugar was is a, a substitute for the other drugs. It's not the best. Yeah, and you start to work on you start you start to work some of the other issues out. You don't crash cars, you know, you don't it takes twenty or thirty years till the diabetes hits, you know. So nobody wants to be on a methadone for 20 or 30 years, but, you know, they're okay with the sugar, flour, and caffeine. And look, people start to get, you know, sick in recovery from these other things. You know, they get the weight issues and diabetes issues. And anyway, I mean, we know about the physical, right? We know what happens when you eat a lot of this stuff and the obesity and all the diabetes and stuff. But what my message is, is trying to get out there is that there is... See, what all of the people out there that talk about sugar and health and stuff, 90 plus percent of them graduated from some health coaching thing, right? right? And, I, and and they include exercise and, mo- and most of them probably are not addicts, right? Right. Because they got great bodies. They're great athletes. They, they teach it and they want to get people off sugar. It's a great hook for their, their other business. And they don't have the addictive background that you and I have. So that, and they haven't studied the people who have lost 200, 300 pounds, who have changed their life by 
eliminating the substance. So the addictive component of the recovery of the change of the transformation is a not known about and b just not discussed, right? And so I got to ease people in that have never. The people that have been in recovery are the easiest people I ever work with because they're like, oh, my God, why didn't I think of that? Totally. Totally. You're like, oh, (laughs) I just remember going, no, you know, just like, oh, Oh, and they're still through the same thing. They're like, oh, man, no, I got to quit that, too. Right. Because you also know you also I remember saying to my you know, it's funny, my husband you know, you say like, oh, the spouse, you know, often is, well, my husband, we've been together for over 10 years. And since I was in my early twenties, when I was at my prime and, um, he's watched the whole thing. He's watched it. He's watched it up close, personal. He's watched all the diets. He's watched the surgery. He's watched every single, you know, iteration of it other than childhood iteration. And he is in a thousand percent support of what I'm doing. And he, and he, he does not have the problem and still is like, what do you need? What do you, and had, you know, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case or five years ago, maybe even, but you know, now having lived it and watched it up close, he would tell you she is addicted to sugar and flour. I mean, I've asked him, I said to him, like, am I crazy? Like, am I, am I crazy? He's like, no, this is a problem. And I completely, so I will do whatever it takes to support you. I was like, oh God. But you know, whereas my parents who haven't been up close and personal and around and haven't, you know, they support it, but it's just, it looks different. Like it's not quite, it, it's not quite on the same and, and scale. And they love me as their child and want nothing but the best for me, but they haven't watched it up close for a long time. And I think that's a really interesting thing in terms of like how someone who, my husband does not understand eating disorders at all whatsoever or any of this stuff. And he's in support of something that changes his life quite dramatically. He doesn't think it's disordered that, you know, I'm doing it and he doesn't, and he, it, it affects him very much so. So I think that's an interesting thing and also testament to what he's been through. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, I mean, I don't really, I mean, I I think we've really covered a lot of the of the issues here. It's, it's just so disheartening to know that, that, you know, you've had a lot of people have had a lot of success with in, in understanding what you just articulated that you don't eat flour and sugar, you know, you get better. So, I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. I mean, it's not, it's what's that phrase, you know, it's easy, but it's not. Yeah. It's simple. It's simple, but simple, but not not easy. Yeah. yeah, That's true. I have one last question for you. And then I want you to tell us all about where we can find all information uh, about Mike and what you're doing and how people can find. So my last question, just out of sheer curiosity is, do you think that there is some correlation with, okay, how do I phrase this? So I'm not leading. So we talked about the process and the sugar in the food and with kids and how this is like a very normal part of society. It's prevalence. Um, We're getting kids addicted to sugar. One of the things that I find or that's happening in so much of the sugar is the addition of all sorts of chemicals, including Roundup that we know is super dangerous and all these other chemicals. Then on top of that, we have, you know, so children are just being inundated with an array of 
new chemicals that we've never seen, and then also this addictive piece. Do you think, and then when they try to remove it, parents try to remove it, right? You're considered a crazy parent or whatever. You're made fun, you know, insert whatever you want. Do you think there's any correlation between the rise in autism rates and the food supply? You know, I, I'm not qualified to answer that, but I will give you my um, my opinion, if you yeah. will. I'm not yeah. qualified to answer it as a, you know, what a, as a di- status or a diagnostically. But uh, I think once you get clean of this stuff, you start to understand the chemical, what chemicals do to you. Like right now, I, in the last 30 years, have probably had 10 accidental ingestations of sugar, meaning somebody swore that that salad dressing didn't have any sugar in it. They made it themselves, but they didn't realize agave was 70% fructose or whatever. And that, when that happens, I've learned to just enjoy the buzz. But what happens after the buzz is what I learned on one of our summits, a woman called it, situational sadness. The next day, I have a hangover. I'm a little bit depressed the next day, right? I'm blue. I'm really blue, okay? And that evening, I sweat. I cover my bed in, like, literally sometimes twice, I sweat through a, a, a nightshirt, right? So my body, and, and this is one of the withdrawal symptoms of sugar addiction, is night sweats. A lot of people have night sweats. They don't know what it is. It's actually sugar addiction. Like you got a lot one day and then you got a less the next day, you'll sweat that night. And even if you're on the stuff, you'll have night sweats. Every time I take a trace, oh, well, this vitamin sounds great. I'm going to take this vitamin. I'm going to take this probiotic, whatever. Every time I take one of those powders, I get the night sweats, right? And so the answer to the question, I think, I, a lot of people, I tell a lot of people, I think I'm more ho- too holistic for my own good, right? But in using my body as a guinea pig, what I've found is that once you have this kind of elimination of the, what I call the powder addiction, the, 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 the substances, that, and when I had, like I had, uh, I broke my foot uh, a little while ago and I had to have some anesthesia and this kind of stuff, man, it whacked me for a month almost. It was just like, you know, my diet, my digestion was whacked. Everything was whacked, you know, because I had these chemicals, right? And so I, I just believe that if someone could get to a holistic or as close to holistic, and if they went and looked back at the history, like in the 1700s, uh, there were doctors that wrote about the influx of the large amount of caffeine, the influx of the large amount of sugar, and what it was doing to their patients in one generation. This literature actually exists, right? And so they saw this happening. And what we are now, where we are now, is 300 years in, and we've just thought of aging, joints, arthritis, yeah. everything yeah. is a is a, an amalgamation of all of these things that we thought were good for us, that science and, and industry has come up with and that has inundated our thing. So yes, I do believe that chemicals of some sort cause these maladies. Uh, and, and I don't know which ones or why, right, right, right. but I do know that they do cause them. I mean, in some way, shape or form, in just my little niche in the world of sugar, I've seen so many. I'm going to give you a, a true, you know, Verda Health, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of them. You can look them up. They're venture backed. They have cured Verta, V-I-R-T-A, right? They have cured hundreds of people of type 2 diabetes just by diet, just by eliminating these things, right? Now, it's mostly keto-based, and there's probably not any long-term studies, but they are in remission for 
type 2 diabetes, right? And if you go through it, one of the guys we had on the uh, on the summit was uh, Dr. Chris Palmer from Harvard, okay? Dr. Palmer studies epilepsy, right? There are a lot of things happening in the world that when people change their diet or eliminate these different things, right? Um, I was mentioning Dr. Chris Palmer from Harvard studying epilepsy Epilepsy. and and having a lot of success with eliminating flour, sugar, and grains. What happens when they do that with epilepsy? They cut the epilepsy uh, events down and back. And some of, I mean, not curing or healing, not changing, but there, there is a lot of positive movement in that area. Right. And Dr. Georgia Eady also of Harvard is studying the, the mental aspects of it, the anxiety, the worry, the depression. And there's a ton of people who are, you know, eliminating sugars and flours and, and caffeines and finding that the depression lifts. And, you know, this, this is, this is it, what I'm trying to say is it's no longer anecdotal. It's no longer just a guy's story. It now there's a lot of science and that science is exploding every single day now. And the new studies come out every single day now. And it really is that, you know, to wrap it up in a big bow, what the Food Addicts Anonymous and Recovery Food Addicts Anonymous folks knew, and you know, just by trial and error 20 years ago and have, you know, made a, a commitment to do, now the science is proving why it works. You know what I mean? Uh, the science is coming out every day to prove why it works. And it's going to be like Dr. Lustig thinks we're in the middle eight years into a tectonic shift, like seatbelts in cars, drinking and driving, uh, condoms and bathrooms, smoking in public places, things that science says that you need to change. And, but people didn't want to change in those days. You know, you remember, you, we've lived through a bunch of these, right? People did not want to change. And, you know, this is happening in the world of sugar, in the world of, you know, processed, ultra-processed carbs. And it's, it's, we're early. We're very early in the game. I am 33 and I still remember I still remember smoking sections in restaurants. Sure. Which is, sure. you know, obviously hysterical. Back now. in my day, you know, drinking and driving, it was technically illegal, but the, the literally the before mad and before friends, uh, you know, don't let friends drive drunk, it was just don't get caught. <laughs> it was, it was not, it was, right. and that was the ethos of the society, not like, yeah, not just very few people were adamant that you shouldn't drink and drive. Right. Very few. It was a, and this, you know, the, you know, the AIDS crisis did one thing, you know, the, they weren't outing people to be mean. They were outing people to get health care. And that's similar in the substance use disorder world, right? Yeah. Um, where yeah. they're changing, you guys world where there's the, the, the advocacy folks are trying to get more uh, stories out so that the you know yes. average person understands it's okay to get help. Yeah. And the health care. And that's what they were doing in the AIDS movement. You know what I mean? It's like, and that's when the condom stuff started happening and people actually took heed because the science was there. Yeah, for sure. Mike, you're wonderful. I am really grateful. You've helped me tremendously. I know you're going to help. I know you're going to help all the listeners, even if you just plant a seed, which is what I'm expecting. Uh, I know that that's how it started with me. You have a website, sugaraddiction.com. You have a Facebook. 
Quit Sugar Now. You have a Twitter, Quit Sugar Now, Instagram, Sugar Addiction Support, and a Pinterest, Sugar Addiction Support. And did I miss any other place where people can find about what you offer and what do you offer? Yeah, once a year we have the Quit Sugar Summit, which we have all the guys, the people that I've been mentioning on. So I've talked to hundreds of researchers and scientists. It's only once a year, but if you go there, you can leave your email and we'll tell you when the next one is. But yeah, most everything's at, at uh, sugaraddiction.com. And there's a book there, a free book. You can download the book at sugaraddiction.com. And that way, you know, you can read about my story and the diet and all that kind of stuff. So. What was the the book about when sugar started to come over and doctors were writing about how it affected Sugar them? blues. Sugar, sugar blues. blues. Okay. Yeah, okay. sugar blues. And it, awesome. it tells the history of the growth of the cartel and the you know, and I mean, I would, I honestly, if I had time, I'd love to do that research and more of that research. Yeah. Just kind of skimmed over it, but you know, that they were aware it was a general, say a generation, 40, 60 years in, you know, when uh, the English empire was at its height, they thought they saw what was happening because caffeine was part of it. They were growing the, the tea and the coffee in those plantations as well. Right. Right. I'm definitely going to read it. I will report back. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Love to keep in touch and I will sign up so that I can let the listeners know also when the Quit Sugar Sugar Summit is going to be. Is it virtual this year or is it virtual every year? It's virtual every year. We just had it, so it won't be for a bit, but we do have some replays uh, you can check out too, but and we're thinking of getting a YouTube channel up. And I want to thank you for doing this and the work that you're doing. Because I'm, I'm been virtual for a long time, I've been watching Lion Rock for a very long time. And I think you guys are doing amazing stuff. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Well, take care. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information. <laughs>